Welcome back to Equity Tutors and our second lesson on Osmo Regulation. Just as a recap, last week we covered the first half of this two-part lesson on Osmo Regulation. We covered the anatomy of the kidneys, so the structure of the kidneys, specifically the structure of the nephron, and then we started to go into the first steps of how the kidneys work, um, covering ultrafiltration and the structure function of the glomerulus and the Bowman's capsule. We also looked at the different factors that would affect the ultrafiltration, things like pressure and solid concentration. And today what we're going to do is move on to the next step, which is selective reabsorption. So many of the substances that end up in the glomerular filtrate, so everything that's moved through the glomerulus into the Bowman's capsule, actually need to be kept by the body. So in the ultrafiltration step, it's just been sorted by size. But of course, there are a lot of small molecules that have been filtered through that we need to reabsorb. So these substances are reabsorbed into the blood as the filtrate passes along the nephron. And this process is known as selective reabsorption as only certain substances are reabsorbed. So glucose, for example, will be reabsorbed in the proximal convoluted tubule. And I'm going to split this lesson into the three anatomical locations of the kidney. So as you're looking at the diagram of a nephron, you'll see a proximal tubule um, following the glomerulus and the Bowman's capsule. So that first uh, line of tubing is the proximal convoluted tubule descending down into the loop of Henle, coming back up to the distal convoluted tubule and then to the collecting duct. So I'm going to go through step by step how selective reabsorption is occurring based on the location in the nephron. So as I said, glucose is reabsorbed in the proximal convoluted tubule and that is where we're going to start the lesson today. And the proximal convoluted tubule is adapted to its function by changes in its structure. So the lining of the proximal convoluted tubule is composed of a single layer of epithelial cells, which are adapted to carry out reabsorption in several ways. So they have microvilli, they have co-transporter proteins, they have a high number of mitochondria, and they are also tightly packed together to maximize the amount of reabsorption. So we're going to start by talking about glucose, whereas water and salts are reabsorbed in the loop of Henle and in the collecting duct. So starting with the proximal tubule, so how did these ad adaptations in the proximal tubule aid in the reabsorption? So let's start with the microvilli. So microvilli present, uh, are presented on the luminal membrane, that means the cell surface membrane that faces the lumen, so the inside. And what is the outcome of the microvilli, so this increases the surface area for reabsorption. Secondly, there are many co-transporter co proteins in the luminal membrane. And what is this adaptation's purpose? So each type of co-transporter protein transports a specific solute, for example glucose 
also a particular amino acid across that luminal membrane. So again, each co-transporter is specific for those specific molecules that we want to reabsorb into our body, reabsorb into the blood. So if there is a type of molecule that we do not need in the blood that we want to get rid of, that co-transporter will not be present on the luminal membrane. The third adaptation is that there are many mitochondria. This adaptation may be obvious, so this provides energy for the sodium-potassium channels to pump proteins into the basal membrane of the cells. And then finally, uh, the cells are tightly packed together. So this means that no fluid can pass between the cells and all the substances that are reabsorbed must pass through these cells. So they're not at all leaky. So now that we know about the structure of the proximal convoluted tubule, how does this reabsorption actually occur? So the blood capillaries are located very close to the outer surface of the proximal convoluted tubules. So they're wrapped around the proximal convoluted tubule, as you can see in the diagram. And as blood in these capillaries comes straight in from the glomerulus, it has very little plasma because it's already lost all the plasma during ultrafiltration. So it's very little plasma and has lost much of its water, inorganic ions and other small solutes. The basal membranes of the proximal convoluted tubule epithelial cells are the sections of the cell membrane that are closest to the blood capillary. So they're right next to each other. And the sodium potassium pumps that I just mentioned in these basal membranes move sodium ions out of the epithelial cells and into the blood where they're carried away. So they're carried away by the blood flow. The result of this is then the lowering of the concentration of sodium ions inside the epithelial cells, causing sodium ions in the filtrate to diffuse down their concentration gradient through the luminal membranes of the epithelial cells. So I'll say that again. So let me repeat that. The sodium-potassium pumps in the basal membranes move sodium ions out of the epithelial cells and into the blood where they are carried away. Now that's important because that means that the sodium or potassium are not going to concentrate, the sodium ions are not going to concentrate in the blood because they're constantly being carried away by the blood flow. But what it does do is lower the concentration of sodium ions inside the epithelial cells causing the sodium ions in the filtrate to diffuse down the concentration gradient through the luminal membranes. These sodium ions do not diffuse freely through the luminal membranes. They must have co-transporter proteins in the membrane. And there are several types of these co-transporter proteins. Each type transports a sodium ion and another solid from the filtrate, for example, glucose or a particular amino acid. Once inside the epithelial cells, these solutes diffuse down their concentration gradient, passing through transport proteins in the basal membrane of the epithelial cells into the blood. Let's look at that in the context of this diagram. So you can see this is a magnified version of the proximal tubule and its relationship with a capillary which is twisted around the proximal tubule on the left. And you can see on the left-hand side the blood plasma, then the endothelium of the capillary. You then see the basement membrane, which is essentially separating the blood cell of the capillary 
from the proximal tubule. Now within the proximal convoluted tubal epithelial cell, you can see the mitochondria, you can see the nuclei uh, are labeled, um, and you can also see the movement of uh, sodium and potassium as we've, as we've described. So looking at step one, so step one is the sodium potassium pumps use ATP from the mitochondria to pump sodium ions out of the proximal convoluted epithelial cells into the blood. So that's how you can see those blue lines where the sodium and potassium are moving from the right to the left hand side of the image. Step two is showing the sodium ions then moving passively down their concentration gradient. So you can see this sodium ions are being all shifted to the left decreasing the concentration within that um, epithelial cell and sod sodium then moves from the proximal tumor lumen into that epithelial cell but we're still within the proximal tubule. So the ions pa move passively down the concentration gradient from the filtrate into the epithelial cells associated with the basement membrane. They do this via a protein co-transporter in the membrane, which at the same time bring glucose and amino acids into the cell. So what co-transporter means, it transports one thing, which it is specific to, which is the sodium, and that sodium is able to bring something else with it, in this case, glucose and amino acids. And then step three, transport proteins in the basal membrane allow solids to diffuse down the concentration gradient from the epithelial cells which is now a high solid concentration to a into the blood, which has a low solid concentration. So what is being reabsorbed in the proximal convoluted tubule specifically? All glucose in the glomerular filtrate is reabsorbed to the blood. This means that no glucose should be present in the urine. Amino acids, vitamins and inorganic ions are reabsorbed. And the movement of all these solids from the proximal convoluted tubule into the capillary increases the water potential of the filtrate. So the filtrate and decreases the water potential of the blood in the capillaries. This creates a steep water potential gradient and causes water to move into the blood by osmosis. And finally, a significant amount of urea is also reabsorbed. And the concentration of urea in the filtrate is higher than in the capillaries, causing urea to diffuse from the filtrate back into the blood. So just to conclude this section on selective reabsorption in the proximal convoluted tubule, all glucose in the glomerular filtrate must be reabsorbed into the blood. However, waste products like urea don't need to be. So the glucose is reabsorbed in the process of co-transport from the epithelial cells of the proximal convoluted tubules back into the capillaries. It is carried out by actively transporting sodium ions from the epithelial cells to the blood, creating a low concentration of sodium ions in these epithelial cells. Sodium ions therefore consequently move in from the lumen of the proximal tubule by diffusion, bringing with it a molecule of glucose. The glucose then diffuses into the blood capillaries. So that is definitely the most complicated, hardest part of the kidney structure function done. So onwards and upwards from here. Uh, the next section we're going to talk about is the loop of Henle. So as the filtrate drips through the loop of Henry, so coming down out of the proximal tubule, down in, into this loop, 
necessary salts are reabsorbed back into the blood by diffusion. So as salts are reabsorbed back into the blood, water will then also follow by osmosis. Water is also reabsorbed by the collecting duct, which we'll talk about in a second, but in different amounts depending on how much water the body needs at that time, which we're going to discuss at the end of the lesson. So the loop of Henley acts as a counter-current multiplier. It works to reabsorb water by a multi-step process. To, so to begin with, sodium ions are actively transported out of the ascending limb using ATP. This therefore creates a lower water potential between the two limbs, so between the interstitial space between the descending and the ascending parts. The ascending limb is impermeable to water and therefore this means that the water only moves out of the descending limb by osmosis into the area of low water potential. The water then enters the blood capillaries in this region by osmosis. So at the hairpin of the loop, the water potential is at its lowest, so the difference is the smallest, where sodium ions are naturally diffusing out. Okay, let's go over that one more time. So the role of the loop of Henley is to make an increased salt concentration gradient in the medulla. Remember when we went over the structure of the kidney in last lesson, the loop of Henley is the, is the structure that actually descends down into the medulla of the kidney. So the filtrate is passing from the proximal convoluted tubule into the descending limb of the loop of Henley, which carries it through the medulla towards the pelvis. The descending limb is permeable to water. So water leaves the filtrate by osmosis and is carried away by the vasorector blood vessels, which is entwined, wrapped around the loop of Henley. The filtrate is getting more concentrated as it descends down, and so the water potential is going to get lower. So all of the water is diffusing out, and so by the time you get to the bottom of the loop, the water potential is low. The salt concentration in the medulla, so where the loop is situated when we think of the anatomy, means that the water potential is always lower in the medulla than in the filtrate. Following reaching the bottom of our loop, we start to go into the ascending, loom of, ascending limb of the loop. And the ascending limb is impermeable to water. And this is really important because when you think about what is going on, we are concentrating all of our waste products. And the further into this structure of the nephron we, we go, the solutes and waste products are becoming more and more concentrated. And what that means is that ultimately the water potential will flip and water will want to come back into the, the nephron down its water potential. So this is why it's important the ascending limb is impermeable to water. Salts are still actively transported in the medulla. Again, this is because it's going against the concentration gradient, creating salt concentration gradient and raising the water potential of the filtrate. And then the final structure is the distal convoluted tubule in the collecting duct. And the distal convoluted tubule in collecting duct, uh, water naturally moves out of these by osmosis since they at this point are very concentrated with waste products. And this is the stage where we are actually able to regulate how much water our body loses. And this is called osmoregulation. 
So the control of the water potential of body fluids is known as osmoregulation. And this is a key part of homeostasis. We have specialised sensory neurons known as osmoreceptors. So osmo meaning water and receptor means to, to receive or to sense. And these monitor the water potential of the blood. These osmoreceptors are found in an area of the brain known as the hypothalamus. And if the osmoreceptors detect a decrease in water potential of the blood, nerve impulses are sent along these neurons to the posterior pituitary gland. So a few new terms there. We have osmoreceptors, so these are specialised sensory neurons which monitor the water potential in the blood. They are located in the hypothalamus. And when these osmoreceptors detect a decrease in water potential, they send nerve impulses to along the sensory neurons to the posterior pituitary gland. And this is another part of the brain just below the hypothalamus. And these nerve impulses stimulate the posterior pituitary gland to release a hormone called the antidiuretic hormone, or ADH for short. When this happens, ADH molecules enter the blood and travel throughout the body. And ADH causes the kidneys to reabsorb more water. So what we get in here is the brain communicating with the kidneys to say, we need more water, you need to reabsorb more water. And this actually results in the reduces the loss of water in the urine by the kidneys. So let me repeat that one more time with maybe a little extra details. Osmoreceptors in the hypothalamus in the brain detect changes in blood water potential. When this falls, the receptor shrinks, therefore causing the hormone called antidiuretic hormone or ADH to be released. This passes to the posterior pituitary gland where it is secreted into the blood. When it arrives in the kidney, it binds to the receptors on the surface of the collecting duct and then those cells react in a specific way in order to change the amount of water that will be reabsorbed in the collecting duct. So as a reminder, water is reabsorbed by osmosis from the filtrate in the nephron. This reabsorption occurs as the filtrate passes through structures known as the collecting ducts, also in the nephron. ADH causes the luminal membranes of the collecting duct to become more permeable to water. So i.e. the membranes facing the lumen of the nephron, they become more permeable to water. ADH does this by causing an increase in the number of aquaporins. So these are water permeable channels in the luminal membranes. So when ADH is received by the collecting duct, there is an increase in the number of these channels called aquaporins. This occurs in the following way. The collecting duct cells contain vesicles the membranes of which contains many aquaporins. So vesicles, remember, sit inside of the cell. ADH molecules bind to the receptor proteins, activating a signaling cascade that leads to the phosphorylation of the aquaporin molecules. The aquaporin 
then becomes activated essentially by this phosphorylation, which causes the vesicles to fuse to the luminal membranes of the collecting duct cells. So therefore the aquaporins go from being inside of the cell to being at the cell surface, increasing the permeability of the membrane to water. So what is the overall outcome of this? As the filtrate in the nephron travels along the collecting duct, water molecules move from the collecting duct, so a high water potential, through the aquaporins and into the tissue fluid and blood plasma in the medulla where there is low water potential. As the filtrate in the collecting duct loses water, it becomes more concentrated. And as a result, a small volume of concentrated urine is produced. This flows from the kidneys through the ureters and into the bladder where it is then excreted. Let's go over that one more time, specifically referring to this diagram. So number one, ADH binds to receptor proteins on the cell surface membranes of the collecting duct cells. This then causes aquaporins to become phosphorylated and you can see the aquaporins being stored on the vesicles on the inside of the cells. These vesicles with the aquaporin stored in their membranes then move towards the luminal membranes and the vesicles fuse with these membranes presenting the aquaporins now on the surface of the cells. Water then moves through the aquaporins, down the water potential gradient and into the concentrated tissue fluid and blood plasma in the medulla of the kidney. So that is all for today's lesson. I'll just do a quick recap. So we started with the filtrate in the Bowman's capsule, moving from the Bowman's capsule through the proximal convoluted tubule where there is selective reabsorption of glucose by active transport with a sodium molecule. From the proximal convoluted tubule, the filtrate moves down the loop of Henle. Here, salts are reabsorbed by diffusion, and then you get movement of water down its water potential by osmosis. Moving into the ascending limb of the loop of Henle, which is impermeable to water towards the top of the uh, ascending loop of Henle, so normal water is lost at this point and waste products begin to be concentrated. This then enters the distal convoluted tubule and the collecting duct and this is where we're able to finally regulate how much water we will lose in the urine and this is regulated by a hormone called ADH which is excreted by our pituitary gland as a result of our osmoreceptors sensing how much water we need in our body. Thank you so much for listening. Remember, you can access additional content on our Patreon page by searching for Equity Tutors, where we have a second 30-minute lesson every week, plus monthly bonus content. You can also find us on most social media platforms. We will keep you updated on new content, and you can find us there by searching for Equity Tutors UK. Please like, share, subscribe and comment wherever you are listening. And if you're enjoying, please leave a review. Bye. Bye.